So good afternoon, good evening, friends. Very good to be here with you. So I am going to share some thoughts on Dharma this afternoon. And I really just want to start with a sense of gratitude. It's much appreciation for all the practice that you're doing. And I know it's not easy. It takes a real sense of just showing up again and again. And some of you have even spoken in the groups around, oh, it's so hard to just do this boring practice. <laughs> when there's like news to read and devices and pets to feed and all of the things. So just so much appreciation and gratitude for your efforts. It's quite important what we're doing here. And sometimes it just feels like nothing, but really just an encouragement to know it's meaningful, it's worthy, it's good what you're doing. So I love the way Mark started with this little three-word check-in in the chat. So body, heart, and mind. You just do a little check-in, the state of things. How is this whole body, heart, mind situation for you right now? And as you type in your words, I would say for me, there's um, excitement in the body. Um, and have a quivering heart and a pretty happy, grateful mind. Yeah. I'll wait for these words to come in. How are you? Calm, tender, connected, light, tender, relaxed, awakeness. Resting, wakeful, achy, open, busy. <laughs> Me too, busy. Relaxed, happy, tired, relaxed, smooth, full, calm, content, alive. Tired, expanding heart. Wakeful, beautiful words. Agitated, sad, relaxed, achy, softish. Confused them. Mm -hmm. Calm, grateful, and open. Sleepy, contented, inquisitive. Chaotic, angry, frustrated. I feel you. Yeah. Body feels comfortable since COVID pounds have been lost. Open heart. Lifelong of lightness in the mind with some humor. Oh, I'd love to hear that. Humor, I think, is the eighth factor of awakening. We need that. Energized, cautiously, joyful, clearish, tender, open, sleepy, energetic, soothed, shifting. Openness, content, spaciousness, neutral, some brightness, and so here. Yeah, sleepy, open, thoughtful. Thank you. It's just, it's so helpful to just hear how you are. It feels more connected. All of these words, these presences in the room. <sighs> so I want to talk about Buddha nature. And then I'll be moving into the sense of wise engagement in some ways, knowing we have Buddha nature, how do we wisely engage it like that? Or right effort is another way to phrase it, but I like this, this term wise engagement. So 
how does it feel to be a Buddha? <laughs> All these Buddhas in the boxes. <laughs> and we'll just do this little game here. Turn to your left and the person in the box to the left of you, just ask them, do you have Buddha nature? Do you have Buddha nature? Good. Okay, now turn to the person to your right. Awesome. Do you have Buddha nature? Do you have Buddha nature? Good. And then nod back. Yes, I have Buddha nature. <laughs> yes, we all do. Yes, Tatigata Garba, the seed of uh, the thus gone this potential and all of these hearts and minds to awaken and just noticing how that feels in your body to hear yeah okay i have it too mm -hmm. so there's lots of different words for this and we've been using some we've talked a lot about awareness which in some schools could be equivalent to buddha nature uh, we've talked about freedom. And in the early Buddhist schools, we hear a lot about Nibbana, enlightenment. So Buddha nature, the seed of awakening that we all have, is leading us all in that same direction. It's freedom. Bodhicitta, the awakened heart and mind. So I'll be using some of these words interchangeably. But I really especially like the phrase Buddha nature because it points to the very natural capacity that we have. The Buddha being the awakened one and then that being our nature. Nothing we have to create or fabricate. It's all here. So Mark really beautifully quoted the Buddha. I think it was the first night or the first morning. Um, this phrase that the Buddha used to describe our Buddha nature. He said, the mind is by nature radiant. It's shining. It is because of visiting forces that we suffer. So, the, so this Pabasara Chitta, Pabasara is brightly shining or bright. And this luminous mind, chitta being heart mind. So it's luminous whether or not we're visited by these obscurations. That's quite a message, isn't it? In some ways, we're just training again and again to come back to that knowing. So again, beautiful quotes we've heard so far. I think Mark also quoted Shabkar, this wonderful Tibetan Rinpoche saying, the mind is vivid like a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, and ceaselessly responsive. The name of this retreat, natural radiance. So what, what is he talking about? Do you know? that feeling of that sort of radiant vividness, it's very natural. The responsiveness of the mind that meets experience. And sometimes these words feel very grandiose, 
And yet there's other terms, especially in Mahamudra teachings that Tibetans use, they say it's ordinary, original mind, kind of like original flavor, like not anything special. Sometimes my teacher Mingyur Rinpoche talks about ordinary mind being actually without a flavor. You know, sometimes we're looking for the big transcendent, explosive, blissful experiences and meditation. And when students come to him and have all these reports about energy moving and chakras opening and bliss exploding, he'll be like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep, ordinary mind. Like, that's just experience. That's just meditative experience. Look at the ordinary mind. <laughs> Like Mark was saying, it's so close, we don't see it. So easy, we don't even notice. Just right here. So we've been sort of talking between two traditions. Here we are in an insight retreat hosted by Spirit Rock, a Vipassana center. And yet we're bringing in these Dogchen teachings from the Tibetan lineages, a little later development in the history of Buddhism. But even in the early teachings, in the suttas, we hear a lot, actually, about what freedom or nibbana might look like. So I'll just offer some terms. You just let them land, see how they are. So um, in the Samyutta Nikaya, the Buddha names nibbana or enlightenment as the truth, the subtle, the invisible, peace the deathless, safety, the wonderful, the island, the refuge. So these are beautiful invitations, aren't they? And can we get a feel for those words even in awareness? Awareness sometimes feels invisible. It's kind of ephemeral transparency to awareness. There's a real truth in it, knowing truth. Awareness as the deathless, the Thai forest master speaks so much about the unborn nature of mind, the undying, the deathless nature of awareness. And when you look at your own experience, is this true? Is awareness free? The kind of freedom in awareness. And yet, so we hear all these words, we make a big deal out of it in our practice, gotta get there, we're going somewhere, we're on the path to freedom, marching along. So my teacher, Carol Wilson, she would just say, big whoop. <laughs> like, what's the big deal about all of this? It's so grandiose. And so, I would say often these teachings, while they uplift the heart, they inspire us, there's a kind of, oh, interest, curiosity. I don't quite know what they're talking about. What about this whole awareness thing? You know, it can kick up real interest and curiosity and you can maybe see if this has been true for you. It can also kick up some doubt. Doubt can come in the form of, I really don't get it. Maybe all these other people, they've been meditating from all these retreats. Maybe they're like super in awareness all the time. But I'm just worried about my knee that hurts. 
and I can't sit still and I'm thinking about what's in the refrigerator and my cat is really bothering me right now. <laughs> We're so much in the world, in life that these sort of esoteric highfalutin ideas about enlightenment feel very far off. So doubt can come in, oh, that's not really for me. I can't really understand awareness. This is too much. Doubt can come in the teachers. Do they know what they're talking about? They also seem like just kind of people talking about all these ideas, but really, have they experienced that? And doubt can come in the teachings themselves. Like, wait, there's all this teaching from different Dharma lineages. And I thought it was all about just becoming an Arhant. And now we're talking about Bodhicitta and Bodhisattvas, which is really true. And it's all confusing. <laughs> so doubt is really one of the most, uh, I would say, interesting and also difficult obstacles that can come on the path. And so part of our practice is getting familiar with those narratives. They come in different flavors. For me, it's always about, I can't do this. And somehow there's something wrong with me. Shouldn't have eaten a second piece of pie. <laughs> it's my fault. Now I'm just nauseous. I can't meditate. <laughs> so we get familiar with how it shows up. And then we just name, oh, this is doubt. This is doubt in the mind. And so I want to share a couple of techniques or strategies for working with doubt. Now, the first thing is there's reminders we can set for ourselves. Like the story, I love this story of the Buddha who sat all night and he attained awakening and all of this amazing insight he had. And then he sat quietly for some days and weeks just under the Bodhi tree there, not quite sure if he was going to teach. And then finally, all these devas and gods came down and, and really begged him. He said, please teach us what you know. And he looked and he saw that there are lots of, lots of beings out there with very little dust in their eyes. And he saw our potential. He saw our Buddha nature. And he thought, oh, yes, the, these, these beings can understand what I've seen. And so I'll teach out of compassion. So he says, you know, I wouldn't teach you this if you couldn't do it. And there's a kind of a deep trust in that. And also, I love that teaching because it's the ultimate inclusivity. He's like all beings, not just this particular cast of people, not just the Brahmins. Everybody's included. You can come ordain with me, practice with me. Even little bugs on the ground, they have Buddha nature too. That's such a radical statement. Beautiful inclusion. We all belong. We all have Tathagata Garba. So one of my beloved teachers, Toko Urgen Rinpoche, he's Mingyur Rinpoche's father. This is what he says to us. He says, foremost, I would like to tell you that an enlightened essence is present in everyone. It is present in every state, both samsara and nirvana, and in all sentient beings. There's no exception. Experience your Buddha nature, make it your constant practice, and you will reach enlightenment. In my lifetime, I have known many, many people who attained such an enlightened state. Awakening to enlightenment is not an ancient fable. It's not mythology. It actually does happen. 
bring the oral instructions into your own practical experience and enlightenment is indeed possible. It's not just a fairy tale. So I love that quote. I reflect on it often. It's not just a fairy tale. And all we do is bring the oral instructions into our practical experience, which is what we've been doing. We just hear about awareness, look at it in your mind, keep coming back to the body. That's it. Fukuorgan and his son, Minger Rinpoche, also says, we do it short times, many times throughout the day. So we remember awareness, maybe even a split second, short times, many times. And that's all. Just point our compass and we go. So the opposite of doubt is faith. Sada in Pali. And I sort of like the translation of trust or confidence better than faith. So you can sort of see how the different connotations of these, land, of these words, how they land for you. But it's really trusting ourselves, having confidence in the path. So Sharon Salisbury, the great teacher of loving kindness, has a, she's a book called Faith. And this is what she says. She says, it's a great turning point in our spiritual lives when we go from intellectual appreciation of a path to the heartfelt confidence that says, yes, it's possible. I can awaken too. A tremendous joy accompanies this confidence. When we place our hearts upon the practice, the teachings come alive. That turning point which transforms an abstract concept of a spiritual path, our own personal path. So the abstract concept of a spiritual path turns into our own personal path. That is faith. Sometimes we call that bright faith, that first moment. And so even as I'm talking, you might reflect back on your own moments of bright faith. When you met a teacher or read a book, or had an experience in practice and you thought, oh, this is true. Something rings really deep in me when I hear this. <clears throat> it's helpful to reflect on your own confidence, your own trust. For me, one of those first moments was I was mm, a sophomore in college on summer break and I did a young adults retreat at Spirit Rock. This was not so long after it was first built. And I remember sort of moving through all the uncomfortable body experiences that one has in their first retreat. And I was very disciplined. I did all the walking periods, I did all the sitting periods and I waited until the very last day to hike up the hill. If you've been to Spirit Rock, you know that beautiful sort of ridge walk and you climb up the grassy knoll quite steep, it was a hot day. So I was like huffing and puffing at the end of the retreat, climbing up this trail and um, somebody came down, she was coming down the trail and um, she I think had been a yogi on the retreat, didn't know her, we were still in silence and sort of stopped to let her pass and we weren't even making eye contact, but I looked up to slightly and she was handing me uh, her water bottle. And this story now feels so antiquated because would we ever share water bottles? <laughs> no. But at that time, 20 years ago, it was just this beautiful offering of generosity. It was a hot day. It's like, here, have something to drink. It was just such a deep kindness and it surprised me so much. I was in my own little world. And there was a sense of faith that got inspired there. Like, oh, this kindness is possible. 
this happens here at this place. It's quite beautiful. And then another moment of really bright faith for me. I love telling this story. This is really kind of the beginnings of my path. I was um, maybe 21, 22, just finished college and was on pilgrimage with my original lamas who are here in Ashland. And we um, traveled to Dharamsala and, and Nepal to meet the great Rinpoches of our Kagyu lineage. So we met His Holiness Dalai Lama and we met Sokni Rinpoche and we met uh, Changu Rinpoche and just all of these masters, really lovely. And so one of the first teachers we met was His Holiness Karmapa, who's sort of second in line to the His Holiness Dalai Lama, like very sort of big person in the Kagyu lineage. And at that time he was 17. He had just come out of Tibet and was living in Dharamsala. And yeah, I was just a few years older than him. And um, remember going in there just with a lot of youth and energy and just really inspired to practice. I'd been reading Hima Chodron. I've been really like wanting to make this my life. And so I went in and prostrated to him. He was sitting in this beautiful room, very sunlit room. And just with all of this sincerity, I told him, I said, you know, Rinpoche, I just want to give my whole life to this practice. I want to ordain as a nun. I want to live in your monastery and I want to study and just do it. I really want to do this thing. And gosh, he looked at me with such compassion and it felt very clear, like he was sort of seeing me deeply, very penetrating gaze. And he said, you know, for you, you don't have to be a nun. You don't have to be special and live in India and do all the things. All you have to do is be mindful all the time. And in the moment I fell off the hook, like, oh, phew, okay. I don't have to do all those hard things. All I have to do is be mindful. <laughs> but as you know now in retreat, that's kind of a tall order, isn't it? I'm still really working on that, chipping away <laughs> every day more humble in the, yeah, the very great difficulty of being mindful all the time. But that moment of feeling so completely seen and in some ways is like this meeting of just ordinariness, seeing me and being like, you can be ordinary, just practice. There's a lot of faith there. Yeah. <clears throat> so many practice stories. So I have one more practice story to tell you about faith. And this happened in, I was doing a long uh, solo retreat. I was living in a very rustic cabin, actually just up in the mountains here above Ashland. And um, it was kind of bordering on wilderness land, nobody around. I had one caretaker who was sort of dropping off food and water for me, but otherwise, chopping wood and um, no running water in the cabin. So just kind of doing the very rustic wilderness retreat. And I had gone in with all of these ambitions. I was going to be in there for six months all alone and do all these special practices. And I got there and was just deeply, deeply suffering. Like all of the demons came to me in this little cabin and I was so afraid and very lonely and just so much doubt really every morning I remember waking up and being like I'm gonna fail again today 
And over time, I thought, okay, all I have to do is just stay in this cabin. If I stay for six months, something will happen. But that embracing of failure, like eating my breakfast and feeling like I'm failing, just trying to be mindful. But there was a kind of um, okayness about the failure. Like over time, there was a kind of delight, like, oh, I can just make all these mistakes. This beautiful Zen phrase, one continuous mistake. And at the end of those six months, I came out pretty relieved to be done, but also with a whole under, new understanding of the past that maybe, and we, I talked to you, one of you, a couple of you about this today, maybe it's about abandoning all the hope that I had and all the fear of failure and just showing up in this very real, very ordinary way, eating my breakfast, staying in the cabin, sitting and walking, So practice, this awareness practice, it invites us to sort of get out of all the achievement, all the hope and fear. And there was a deep trust and confidence at the end of that retreat that I could fail again and again and awareness would still be here and something did happen in that retreat. So this path is very much a paradox. We're doing what feels impossible to do. It is impossible. It's such a huge, vast project. (laughs) Uprooting all these difficulties in the mind. And yet, also, there's nothing to do. Already done. Awareness is already here. It's already perfect. And so all we have to do is wake up to that truth as it is. We just keep resting back again and again in what's already here that's already free. We hear all these teachings about awareness that is timeless. There's no future, no future freedom. The only freedom that's possible is here in this moment. And so each moment we can choose. Do I want to be bound or do I want to be free? So we're already free. We're already pacified. And the great wisdom teacher, Nagarjuna, He says, when Buddhas don't appear and their followers are gone, the wisdom of awakening bursts forth by itself. The wisdom of awakening bursts forth by itself. And that really, I think, is a pointing to this nature of awareness. It's happening all the time. So when doubt arises, you can use these phrases, these little reminders, already free, already here. Another really lovely Zen phrase I use a lot is just now is enough. Just now is enough. I don't need more samadhi. I don't need more stillness. I don't need more discipline. Just now is enough. Ordinary awareness. And so sometimes also doubt is countered by wise reflection. You're contemplating all the ways this practice has been helpful for you in your life. How have you already been transformed? And that can build a real sense of inner confidence when we see, oh yeah, it actually, it works. Even in maybe small, very mundane ways. Maybe I'm a little more, more patient with my puppy. Reflecting on how it's worked for you. 
So a lot of how these Buddhas, uh, the Buddhas don't appear and their followers are gone, the wisdom of awakening bursts forth by itself. A lot of how this happens is by setting up these conditions. And so one condition that we've been working on all of this, this retreat so far, these three days, is how to wisely engage the practice. So I think it's actually Martin Aylward who uses this phrase wise engagement for right effort. And we hear a lot about right effort and the Eightfold Path and the five spiritual faculties and the Pali word is virya. So it's commonly translated as energy, diligence, enthusiasm. It can be defined as an attitude of gladly engaging in wholesome activities. So I wanna talk a bit about how we balance, how we cultivate this wise engagement because so little of what happens in practice is our doing. <laughs> a lot of times it's just like grace or blessing that descends. But we can certainly measure our efforts, our energy, so that it's a sustainable kind of engagement. And we're going for a momentum, for continuity. When we wanna be mindful all the time, we have to sustain our energy. So how do we balance it? And we've been talking a lot about balancing the Qigong's one way. Um, Ajahn Suchito talks about energy as intelligence in the system. And so the ways that we work and practice, we're just unlocking this inherent intelligence that understands the balance between awareness, awakeness, alertness and this deep sense of ease. So we're kind of playing between the two, calm, concentration, energy investigation. So the first way I wanna to point to this virya or this energy is really how it manifests in our body. So energy in the body can feel rough or smooth, brittle. It can feel syncopated, bristling, buzzing. It can feel indolent and dull or electric and edgy, or sticky or thick. So as our awareness becomes more refined in the body, mindfulness of the body, we become familiar with all of these different manifestations of energy when it's very wild and big, or when it's kind of dull and heavy, or when we feel very small and just very quiet and subtle. And as we wake up that intelligence, unlock that intelligence, we become more skillful at refining it, at smoothing it, at harmonizing it. So feeling the flow of energy through the body and feeling how it supports our presence supports the way we're relating to ourselves, the way we're relating to our world, and supports the remembering to come back in again and again to awareness. So I love to think about energy, how it manifests in the body, but also how it manifests in nature. Right? We see a lot of energy in water. There's this creek that flows down through Ashland, and now because we've had so much rain, it's rushing. And I went for a run this morning up the valley and it was just rushing this water so loud over the rocks. A lot of energy there. Or if you think about thunderstorms, 
or so beautiful to live in Hawaii and just feel these huge rainstorms, just the pounding torrential rain and the wild waves kicked up by the wind and a lot of energy in nature. I have a dear friend who lives in Iceland. And so a few years ago, Christine, she invited us, my partner and I, to go teach mindfulness in Iceland. And so I'm thinking of you, Raminta, who lives in Greenland. The, the territory in Iceland might be somewhat similar. It's so dramatic. The territory, wow, so barren and yet so bright. There's all these lava fields and really just beautiful, special places in nature. And with Christine, she's sort of a nature ecologist. And she would take us to these very sacred places and we'd sit out very exposed and wind whipping through our clothes and our hair out by the ocean. And she would teach us like take in the energy of the wind. Use the power of the wind to buoy your own energy. It was such a teaching because usually, you know, I'm sort of averse to wind and it's uncomfortable and cold, chilly wind. But this was like an opening. Oh, it's very powerful. And can we actually use that as a support? Feel the power of the wind in your body. So this is very good for nature practice. I know several of you do this outside the wilderness practice. So feeling the natural energy or virya in the wild. T.S. Eliot says, music is heard so deeply that it's not heard at all but you are the music while the music lasts. And I think this is also a way to tune into our energy. We're hearing it deeply in our bones. And we also in some ways become that as we breathe in more presencing and awareness. So how to balance all these natural forces. So I'll just speak for myself. I am a striver and I can say pretty confidently, I think in dominant culture, at least here in the West, we're very much taught how to strive, right? We're in this very business model of how to get things done, how to succeed, how to achieve. We're given grades in school. We're really pushing all the time, right? We're caffeinated. We're really taught well how to exert a lot of energy. And you might just think about that, even in how you engage in everyday life activities, cleaning the house or exercising, or doing a work project. Different folks are different, but for me, it's always with this sort of extra push, a lot of sort of efforting to get something done. And this goal-oriented approach, as you've probably seen, doesn't work so well in meditation practice. So sometimes we call this striving mind or just that you can feel like the subtle pushing or leaning forward into the future, wanting to get something or this sense of, I have to do it right. I'm doing this practice, right? And these layers can be very subtle. Even if we're leaning into the next in-breath, wanting a little bit more insight the next time. So one of my favorite suttas, that I think is a good reminder for how to balance energy is the Rohitasa Sutta. So you might be familiar with this. Rohitasa is a very beloved kind of figure. I sort of see them as kind of like Puck in A Midsummer Night's Dream. 
very quirky and energetic and um, beloved. And I always think of, of Rohitasa as non-binary. They're just this kind of bright, sprightly spirit. And they're endowed with this fast walking power so they can move really fast throughout the world and kind of circle the globe really fast. They're the child of a deva, is said. So Rohitasa comes to the Buddha after having traveled around and traveled around, busy, 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 busy. <laughs> I can really relate to this activity, right? They're striving all over, walking, fast walking, going hundreds of miles, traveling all the time. So Rohitasa asks the Buddha, is it possible through traveling to reach the end of suffering? I would think about that in terms of, for me, it's like, I'm on the hamster wheel, I'm going. Can I, if I just keep going, can I reach the end of suffering? And the Buddha was very clear. He says to Rohitasa, it's not possible to reach the end of suffering without reaching the end of the world. And then the Buddha says the world the beginning of the world and the end of the world, the origin, the abiding and the end of the world is all found in this fathom long body with its sensations, perceptions, cognition. The whole world is here. And it's such a beautiful reminder to come home after all that running about and the errands and how busy we get. But that sutta, I think, is pointing us right back here. Oh, the end of suffering is found right here in this body. And it can easily be found perhaps maybe by exhaling. Or just taking a little pause in between things. And feeling the belly and knowing awareness. And this from Pima Chodron, she says kind of what the Buddha said. She says, it's helpful to realize that this very body we have that's sitting right here, right now with its aches and pleasures, it's exactly what we need to be fully human, fully awake and fully alive. So invitations to slow down, to relax, to let go and trust. We push so hard and push ourselves again and again. This was very much what brought me to the path. The straight A student, overcommitted all the time, rowing on the crew team, over-exercising, under-eating, very much driven, pushing myself all the time. And when I heard these teachings about natural awareness, it was like, oh, something deep in me resonated. I can maybe... Relax. And I'm still learning to do that, of course. But I think it's a very beautiful invitation to all of us. So Sayada Utejaniya is a beloved Burmese teacher, uh, very skillful at teaching daily life practice. And so Sayada says this, he says, right now, are you aware of your posture? Are you aware of your hands? Can you feel your feet? Notice how little energy you need to know any of this. This is all the energy you need to remain aware. That's all the energy you need. But remember, you need to do this all day long. 
<laughs> so that's the sustainability. That's the sense of, oh, I need to let go of the striving, knowing that it's much more smooth and continuous if I just let awareness do its work. So the image, I think maybe Sayada uses this image and certainly my friend Alexis who teaches in this style um, uses this uh, analogy you might've seen maybe in, in other countries. Sometimes I think I've seen it in Mexico and Guatemala. Um, kids in the, in the streets are playing and they sometimes have these wheels and they use a stick to keep the wheel rolling. It's kind of this game to see how far the wheel can roll. And if you think about that, the wheel's already rolling. And so all you do with the stick is this very light tap, very light. And that's in some way kind of the subtle energy it takes for continuity of awareness. That awareness is already happening. It's already going, right? We saw last night, we can't stop it. But the momentum of continuity is just that very light tap of the stick. Just to keep it rolling. Am I aware? Can I feel my hands? Can I feel my feet? Am I aware? Sustainable energy. Sayada says, stay cool and calm and practice. Stay interested. A relaxed continuity. I like that. Stay cool. Stay calm. Relax. So one way I like to think about balancing energy is um, this really beautiful tradition they have in Hawaii. So originally, the way that they divided up the land before uh, the colonizers came is that each family would be in charge of a kind of slice of a pie. So these slices would run from mountaintop, from the Mauna, all the way down to Moana, to the sea. It would be kind of this pie slice. And this, this section of land would be, would call, it was called an ahu pua'a in Hawaiian. And each family was sort of given stewardship of these ahu pua'a and their responsibility wasn't to own the land, it wasn't to dominate the land. <laughs> there wasn't a kind of ownership. It was more of a stewardship. So how do we keep my particular ahu pua'a in harmony? Balancing the different ecosystems, noticing how the species are interacting with each other. And yet each ahupua'a was very clear. So each family knew what they were responsible for. And so when we're balancing our energy, it's sort of knowing, okay, what is my ahupua'a? My field of the senses, what am I responsible for tending? For stewardship, how am I caring for my environment, for my senses, for my mind? And I'm not responsible for somebody else's. And noticing sometimes we reach out, we take responsibility for more. I know for me, I'm always worried about my parents. My parents are in their 80s and they're, they're healthy, but I'm always like, are you being careful? Are you wearing your masks? Are you going shopping? How are you dealing with COVID? Noticing all this anxiety. Not really my ahupua'a. It's their world. So can I stay cool and calm and just know, okay, this is my responsibility here, this mind take care of harmonizing these energies and trust them to do theirs. So another story from Hawaii. 
was very lucky while I was there. We lived near a beach, and so I learned to surf. I'm still not very good, <laughs> really kind of a beginner surfer, but the lessons were very insightful. And I have to tell you, surfers are masters of energy. They really know about this balance because we go out there fighting the waves all the way, <laughs> fighting, fighting, fighting on my board to even stay on it. And then you learn this kind of grace in reading the waves. There's a whole other skill to understand, okay, the surge coming, estimating how big the wave is going to be. Is it going to be a good sort of smooth curl to catch? So I was reading the waves, reading the waves. And when I would choose a wave, my whole body would go into overdrive, like paddle, like crazy. <laughs> like so intense to try to get up enough momentum to catch that wave. And it took me time to realize all the extra energy I was expending and all of that paddling and kicking my legs and trying to get up. But if I read the water in a more accurate way, it was like just a couple really strong strokes right at the perfect timing and you just catch it. And then you let the water carry you. So that kind of graceful reading the water, understanding, oh, okay, the causes and conditions for the board to catch. That's what we're doing in practice. We're learning to read our own energy systems. Oh, a couple of hard pushes here, right? A little bit of effort. And then letting the wave catch you, letting the momentum carry you. Like that. And of course, we're not going to be good at first. It can be kind of a mess, right? We're out there. It's all this carnage in the waves. And that's okay in practice. We have to mess up in order to understand what it feels like to be balanced. So over-efforting, under-efforting, that's all part of the territory. Okay, so this is my very favorite quote of all time. You ready for it? This is from the great Dzogchen master, Dogo Kensei Rinpoche. He lived in the last uh, century. I think he died in the 90s, maybe. He said, the everyday practice is simply to develop a complete acceptance and openness to all situations and emotions and to all people, experiencing everything totally without mental reservations and without mental reservations and blockages, so that one never withdraws or centralizes into oneself. This produces a tremendous energy which is usually locked up in the process of mental evasion and a general running away from life experiences. So the everyday practice, so to develop a complete acceptance and openness to everything, experiencing everything total without reservation. I mean, that's a little bit radical, <laughs> right? And I love the way he points to how we, it releases energy because so much energy often is, is taken up with mental evasion, running away from life experience, centralizing, centralizing into ourselves. <clears throat> and we feel that in the teachers, their presence, and certainly my Tibetan teachers, they feel that kind of openness with them. And that's what we've been doing in the practice, this open awareness. There's a radical allowing, okay, whatever is here, awareness knows it. 
So slightly, gradually over time, we learn, oh, there's more energy with less self-referentiality. I'm focused on others, there's more energy. So sounds good, all this relaxing and being with things as they are and Buddha nature is natural, we're already free. And so the pendulum can swing and I've had this, lots of striving on one end, it can swing right into complacency in practice. And have you ever noticed that? Like the mind that just really loves the peace that comes and kind of gets really into samadhi, just flowing along, a lot of calm. And sometimes we can really get stuck there. Like, oh, it just feels really good. Just all the tranquility. And there's this wonderful Tibetan phrase and it says, self-liberate even the antidote. So even if the antidote is cultivating samadhi and calm and tranquility and relaxing and resting, we liberate even that so we don't get stuck in the peace. This is Norman Fisher's translation of that phrase. It's just don't get stuck in peace. <laughs> He's a great Zen teacher, Norman Fisher. It's kind of a grumpy Zen abbot. He's a great teacher. So sometimes we need to relax and rest. And other times we need a lot of energy. We need to be fierce. And I'm sure you've seen this in your mind when you're just really working with something difficult and the ability to be with it is a kind of fierce energy. It's powerful. A determination, a diligence. So we need to bring up that kind of energy sometimes in our practice. So this is my favorite poem that relates to this kind of enduring energy. And this is about the black pole warbler, who's a little bird, the black pole warbler. So this is a poem. Consider the black pole warbler. She tips the scales at one ounce, one ounce. Then she migrates taking off from the sea coast to our east, flying higher and higher, ascending two or three miles above the ocean. She flies 80 hours until she lands in Tobago, north of Venezuela, three days older and weighing half as much. She flies over open ocean almost the whole way, Oh, she's not so different from us. The arc of our lives is a mystery too. We don't understand. We cannot see what guides us on our way, that longing that pulls us toward the light. Not knowing, we fly onward, hearing the dull roar of the waves below. So this little bird, she weighs one ounce and she flies for three days. She shows up in Tobago weighing half an ounce. That is some energy, isn't it? And my friend, dear friend, Tuari Salah, who's also a wonderful meditation teacher, she says, you know, if that was us, we would just be complaining the whole way. All those 80 hours of flight. Do I have to? How much longer? So hard. Losing <laughs> half my body weight. It's sometimes a little bit how we feel in retreat, right? 
okay, when is it? The end of the third day, two more days to go. Another walk, another sit. So we can consider the black pole warbler, just that determination. And this path takes determination. As you know, it takes discipline. You just keep flying and keep going in one continuous mistake. So just a couple of suggestions about how to bring up this kind of power, this kind of diligence. And again, this is like reflection or contemplation. A lot of what you've done in these, the, this retreat environment, even at home, is create a kind of simplicity with your schedule. When we simplify things, there's less distractions, less things to do. We have more energy. <laughs> Seems kind of common sense, but this is radical. And I know there's probably boredom and I know there's resistance to simplifying and we want to check our mail and we want to keep things complicated. But you've probably seen over these couple of days, as you continue in the boredom, in the simplicity, there can be a real joy that comes. And this kind of upwelling of uh, energy, strength that can come. Sometimes we call this renunciation and really encouraging you. The beauty of home retreat is that you do this for five days, but then you have some momentum to continue. So considering in your daily lives, are there extra activities that can be let go? Extra mental preoccupations that just are unnecessary. I think this is a very powerful way to support the ongoing continuity of practice. Another way to really bring up this kind of power and energy is to contemplate impermanence. That when we really think about it, we're aging. These bodies, breath by breath, like it or not, <laughs> we're getting older. And we actually don't know how much time we have left. And these conditions that we've created and that we have, we're so privileged to have the time and the means and the space and the mind that can practice. It's so rare actually to have these conditions. Many beings don't have these conditions. And so when we consider, and at any time these conditions could be taken away, something could happen, an injury, a family member, somebody needs us. We don't have the same kind of freedom anymore to practice. This can create real inspiration and motivation to keep going. And I know I've, again, heard from many of you this time during COVID, it's been such a good time for practice. All this Dharma online, taking advantage of it, doing more retreats, lovely to hear. Because we don't know how long it will last. And there's some part of me that's like, yeah, just rejoicing in the simplicity that, that this time has brought. Of course, that rests on a lot of privilege. But one way to leverage our privilege is to use our time wisely, to practice not only for our own benefit, but for the benefit of those who will come after us for future generations, and benefit those around us in our circles. Very important. In some ways, it's the most important thing you can do. So how do we create that inspiration to keep going? Okay, so just one more piece I want to add to this. 
Balancing energy, harmonizing it, getting inspired to practice, bringing up strength, diligence. And when we continue in this way, balanced energy, wise engagement, this can lead to unexpected outcomes. So again, this is Dilgo Kensei Rinpoche. He says, when we recognize the empty nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. So we start to see all the benefits of this practice in my own life. I see this. And the nature of Dharma, again, this word, the natural quality of Dharma is that it is shared, that other people feel it. That when we wake up and we calm down, other people feel that and they're benefited from it. Holiness Karmapa says, all refuges are held within complete wakefulness. So we start to see our connections in complete wakefulness. We start to see interdependence. Oh my goodness, everything I do has an impact. It has an impact on the earth. It has an impact on my relationships. It has an impact on my communities. The way I'm working with my mind has an impact. And so through practice, we can refine more and more this sort of wisdom grows. We know how to be in a skillful way for others. We recognize our ancestry, our lineage, and we practice for them too. All these lives, these energies given so that we can flourish and then also serve the world. So I'm told that every morning the Dalai Lama wakes up and this is what he says. It's a prayer actually from Shantideva. He says, as long as space endures, as long as there are beings to be found, may I continue likewise to remain, to drive away the sorrows of the world. And so we're not just practicing for our own benefit. And we can't, we can't just do this in a vacuum. It's inevitable that it will help others. And I really like to remember this, especially when things are hard and I'm struggling and brokenness and all the complexity and the really deep ache of this world that is just so difficult. And when I'm in that space and practice, I like to remember, oh, but I'm not just practicing for me. That there's all these other beings out there who are maybe struggling in the same way. And if I could show up to this moment on their behalf, if I can show a little bit more courage and a little bit more willingness to be with myself uh, for them, <laughs> may they also benefit. There's a great energy that's released, actually. And there's a willingness to keep going. And the beautiful Zen monk Ryokan's poet, he says, oh, that my monk's robes were wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. That's often what happens when we rest in awareness, we notice this just open-heartedness. Oh, I care. A little deep caring about the world. So again, the Karmapa says, don't doubt that this heart has the capacity to hold all of the suffering in the world. As we grow and grow and grow more in awareness, we realize, oh, maybe this impossible thing is possible. 
a beautiful Zen prayer I used to chant. My partner is a Zen, Zen practitioner. So in the Zen monastery, we used to chant, sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Desires are inexhaustible. I vow to put an end to them. The dharmas are boundless. I vow to master them. The Buddha way is unsurpassable. I vow to attain it. I'm speaking to that impossible path, but there's a kind of uplifting I find in these very deep vows. So just as Mark was saying this morning that when we start to open to this awareness, there's a very deep intimacy. So Dogen, the great Zen master said, the earth, the trees and grasses, fences and walls, all the various things in the 10 directions perform the work of the Buddhas. Those who receive the benefits produced by these wind and water elements are inconceivably helped by the Buddha's wondrous guidance and all awaken intimately to themselves. So we're awakening to intimacy. The simplicity of the rain and the wind and the roses on the counter is all very ordinary. We're just waking up to this pabasaracitta, this empty, knowing, radiant mind. So I'll leave you with one more poem, a small poem by Li Po. It's called Zazen on Ching Ting Mountain. The birds have vanished down the sky. Now the last cloud drains away. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. Now the last cloud is drained away and we sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.